Um, we are continuing. In fact, we're going to pick up as if we never stopped um, right back in the book of Job. So if you turn in your Bibles to that, uh, that excellent section of Scripture that may be a little bit more crisp than other portions of your Scripture, the book of Job, chapter 18 and chapter 19. I realize the TV is not on in the back. Is that? There you go. Thank you. Appreciate it. You guys have it up here? Oh, no, it's coming on up here. As our guys do that. Um, so we have uh, uh, entered into the second round of dialogues between Job and his friends. I, I think I don't need to say too much about uh, the background of the book of Job. right? We know Job, and in the opening chapter of Job, there is a, a clear right, um, appreciation of the godliness of this man. That he is upright that he is righteous, that is affirmed by heaven's court, that is affirmed by his reputation in the world. He is an excellent example of a man of faith. But he is now tested. Satan is desired to try him, and God has allowed him to go as far as to remove everything good in his life. His children, his family, his, his possessions, his security, even his health. And as we have been listening to Job, arguing back and forth with, with his friends, it has become abundantly clear that Job expects that he will die soon. You don't hear in Job's dialogues this sense like, well, you know, I'm going to be strong again, and then you'll see, I'll get you, right? Game's not over. I still have a shot in this. You don't hear that kind of optimism. What you will hear, as we will see today, is that I'm going to die. But after I die, God will still vindicate me. Because you may not know, and you may not trust me, but God knows. That that is one of the tremendous lessons of the book of Job. That God is the one that knows. In fact, may I say it this way? Today, we are talking about Bildad versus Job. So this is the second cycle of arguments going back and forth. The first cycle, we, we already walked through with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Each of them had a shot at Job. And each of them are very different, right? You almost go from softest to most extreme. You go from Eliphaz, who has almost a pastoral heart, and his temperament is clearly that of a gentle pastor trying to encourage Job towards the light. Bildad is a traditionalist, and he is much more concerned with keeping the old nature and the old ideas, right? He has a rigid formula. They all do, but he in particular is convinced that Job, this is how the system works. And then we're not looking at Zophar today, but Zophar is the one that basically says, Job, you're a sinner and you're going to hell, right? So you go from softer to more intense. Well, Bildad versus Job is this interesting dialogue that will bring up condemnation. The condemnation will be on Bildad's part. And this declaration of hope, the hope will be on Job's part. And I would like to say to you that this is just a worldview clash. The one worldview, right? The way that they view the world and everything is different from this worldview. The Bildad is so different from Job, but they are not. Their worldview is almost identical. 
I'd like to say that there's a theological distinctive between the two. That, that if you look at Bildad, his theology is so messed up that there is something really wrong. He would have flunked out of seminary. He would have been kicked out of uh, the elder board. He is, not, he is not theologically right. You would be mistaken. Their theology is quite similar. I even want to say that perhaps... There's a misapplication of Scripture. Now, that part's true. There is a misapplication of Scripture, but it goes deeper than that. It is not simply a matter of the right passage for the right circumstance. There is some of that. But in the end, it comes down to what is our view of God? What is it that we actually know about Him? Because in a clearly defined, right, well-regulated tight box of theological conviction, we could say, well, this is God, this is us, this is you, there you go, do something with that. That would be Bildad. Or we can recognize that this is God, this is me, something is wrong. Something is wrong with me, something is wrong with my circumstance, and there's so many things I can't explain in terms of how God does what he does in my life. I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm begging the Lord for help. See, the difference is not just that Bildad is not under the gun and Job is. There's some of that, certainly. But there is, in Bildad, this very rigid sense of who God is and what the pattern and system of life must be. And Job is messing around. And for Job, under the gun, certainly, in the heat of the fiery ordeal, Absolutely. But recognizing that he is still God's friend and he doesn't get what's happening to him. That's significant because you see in in Job 19 in particular, in Job's response, probably the most emotionally honest and sincere statement of hope in the midst of difficulty that you'll find in Scripture. I'm just going to read chapter 19. We're going to look at both. And uh, what do we have? Like 40 minutes? We only... <laughs> I, I am rusty, right, at preaching. And so if we go like an hour and a half, that wouldn't shock me, but I will try to, to pare it down. We'll be moving quickly. But I would like to read for you chapter 19, and then we'll, we'll kind of back up and read and explain Bildad's argument in chapter 18, and then get back to chapter 19. But chapter 19... I think is the crux, I think, of the heart of the book of Job and in terms of what Job knows about his God and about himself. Chapter 19 of the book of Job reads this. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. You are not ashamed Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it is true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. 
I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope he, he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and a camp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me when I rise. They talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this precious portion of your holy and uh, inerrant and absolutely authoritative scriptures, we look and ask that you would inform our souls, that you would remind us, Lord, not, not just of how to counsel better, which is important and significant, but how to think and trust and live with the knowledge of our God in a way that will hold us. We've been saying, Lord, that you would hold us fast. Lord, indeed, may our theology May the application of that theology, may our understanding of who God is, may that hold us fast. May it be the knowledge of you that works in us in the darkest moment of our lives that we may still hold faithful and true and find that even if there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel, you are the great light. And if this life ends in ruin, you still await us in the life to come. We praise you for the kind of insight that you give to the faithful throughout Scripture, that it may inform us, help us to have faith that is that strong. Help us to avoid the rigidity of a religious uh, um, legalism that just demands and demands, but does not recognize that our God, for His absolute, perfect, holy righteousness, has demonstrated a mercy we can never deserve in Jesus Christ. And may that feed and fuel us to live well in this life in prosperity and in pain. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So we're looking at Bildad versus Job. Condemnation. Condemnation and hope. So two simple breakdowns. Chapter 18 is just Bildad speaking and speaking an excellent sermon of condemnation. Chapter 19, as we've just read, is Job speaking, and he, we could break that into two parts. It is Job speaking of his pain, and then Job speaking of his hope. But we begin with Bildad's condemnation in chapter 18. Two large sections, and then we're going to look at the second part mostly, so I just listed both of them up there for you. By the way, if it's easier for you, like you don't want to stare at a screen or the letters are too small, you know you can look at your devices and look at our church website's bulletin, and our outline is always there as well. But chapter 18, Bildad enters into round two of the dialogues, and he begins with this in verse 18, I mean chapter 18, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? So the first four verses are simply, Job, would you shut up and listen? Would you listen up, Job? Right? He, he begins in the same way he began his first speech. Let me read you verse 2 of his first speech from chapter 8. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? See, Bildad, he's okay with just telling Job, you need to shut up and you need to think. In fact, verse 2 says, how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and that word is a command. He is saying, listen. The NIV translates that, be sensible. The idea is, if you would humble yourself and think about what we're saying you might actually be in a position to dialogue with us. In fact, he is offended. Are we cattle? Verse 3. Are we stupid in your sight? You're the one tearing yourself up in anger. You're upset. So should God change the rotation of the earth because you have been forsaken? Should God remove a mountain out of its place because you feel like things aren't the way it should be? Should God and us reshape ourselves to accommodate you? It is a blast off on Job, accusing him of arrogance, of stubbornness, and not listening. See, the thing is, in any given moment, if we just stepped into this conversation, like, you know, you're just wandering around and on the very eastern side of the, the known world, and you just kind of walk up, and there's a guy covered in boil, suffering, etc., and his friend seems to be comforting him, but he's just blasting off on him. I think two things we would think. One, it could be that that guy that has boils on him, he's a bad dude. He won't listen. He's kind of a bad dude. But then as you assess the situation, you might think to yourself, at least initially, like, Maybe his friend ought to ease up a little bit, you know? He's not in good shape. This is Bildad, bold, confrontational, and saying it like it is. And what he will say in the next few verses, in the second part B, the path of the wicked, is his sermon of condemnation. This is a sermon on what happens to wicked people, implying that Job is wicked people. Right? So we're looking at uh, point B, and we'll be moving through this section kind of quickly, but follow along. This is a sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? Verse, begin here in verses 5 and 6. 
says that indeed the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp above him is put out. He uses the illustration of the dying of the light. And throughout scripture, metaphorically, and even in, in terms of our experience in life, right? Life is, or light is life, vitality, right? And help. You guys realize we are physically built God has created us in such a way that light is always a constant blessing to us. Light helps us to see. Our eyes do not draw in darkness and help us to see in the dark. Right? Our eyes are designed, whatever little light it gets, to use that light. Our mind, similarly, metaphorically, spiritually, mentally, is, is, is designed to grow, to think, to analyze, and to expand. The scriptures use that as a metaphor Right? For, or use light as a metaphor for that expansion of knowledge, of wisdom, etc. We are by design and intentionally created for light. So when scripture talks about light, it talks about life, truth, energy, vitality, all those things that we need as its metaphor. So then what is darkness? What happens if the light of the wicked is snuffed out or the flame no longer can shine or the very light inside of his dwelling in his house and his tent is gone and the lamp is put out? It means that he is cast into judgment and darkness. Life and truth is fading. It's not just less access Bildad is saying the path of the wicked ends in absolute darkness. His light is snuffed out. That's what's happening to you, Job. You realize outer darkness is a phrase that Jesus uses um, for hell, as a description of hell in Matthew 8, Matthew 22, and and, uh, in two different parables in Matthew 22. The outer darkness. This is Bildad's sermon. You'll be darkened. Right? This is how the wicked go. This is their path. You will be trapped. Look at verses 7 through 10. His strong steps are shortened. His own schemes throw him down, for he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. So this is all about entrapment, right? Look, look at the ideas. So it begins with this description of his strong steps are shortened. The idea, I think, is like young, youthful, energetic, right? Like strong steps that you can take when you're young. And then as we get older, yes, I said we, first person plural, right? I include myself in that group. Like your stride can't be too long because you're going to pull something, Right? You can't be jumping around all the time. You're going to break something. You got to you shorten your stride, you know, and as we get more and more enfeebled, you know, we kind of shuffle our gait and we just kind of do our best to get from point A to point B as slow as it takes. That's, that's what he's saying. The vitality will be stripped away. But notice how he says it. It is his own schemes that throw him down. And then he uses all this terminology. It's like being cast in a net. It's like walking into a mesh. It's like the trap that grabs you by the heels, the snare that lays hold of you, the rope that is hidden. It's like, you know, that noose trap that, you know, the hunters will use. I'll be honest with you. I've seen that on cartoons and stuff. I don't know if that really works. I assume it kind of does, right? But you step into that noose and woof, you know, you go upside down, you get trapped. It's all of that. He's saying that your path will lead you to entrapment. These are not just true theologically, but excellently. 
These are helpful things for us to think about, right? Those small sins, those subtle sins, they become larger sins not because, right, we can dodge everything whenever we like, not because we can quit anytime we like, but because it's the nature of sin and wickedness. Romans 6 says, before we were in Christ, we were slaves of sin. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. See, the description of Scripture in our sinful nature is that the wicked, this is all true, theologically accurate, and at this point, an excellent sermon. We are, because of our sin nature, naturally entrapped to more sin. Do you recognize that about your own sinfulness? That you used to tell small lies? maybe exaggerations. And it's become easier and easier to just lie. When God is the God of truth and he knows everything that you've said and he knows that you are lying, it's hard for us to distract ourselves from that. Have you noticed whether it's addictive things like sexual sin, all right? Or maybe too much alcohol or anything like that. It could be food, anything that is, that is an enjoyment that, that we delight in for a moment. And all of a sudden, it's hard at some point to say no. It's an entrapment to sin. He's not wrong in this. In fact, this is helpful for us to think about because this is the language of the rest of Scripture, even our New Testament Scriptures, right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And when we talk about dead, I like to say it's an absolute term. We don't say, mostly dead. You know, so-and-so passed away. He's dead. He's dead? Well, how dead is he? Why isn't he at church, right? We don't say that. Sickness is a relative term. Death, spiritual death is absolute. We are drowned, not drowning. It is true that we are drowning, but Ephesians 2 says we are already dead, drowned in the cesspool of our trespasses and sins. So, so far, so, so good, right? Bildad is correct, and this is something that we need to hear. This is something that you need to hear. If you're a believer, this is the warning against sin and why we need to be sanctified and fight sin at every corner. If you are not a believer or you're searching and you're here because you're just kind of checking out church, etc., this is one of the most significant things that you need to recognize in our humanness. And I say are because there's no Christian here that is above you. We're all of us born into wickedness and a sin nature that causes us to constantly walk a path of traps. Sin. We are enslaved to sin. Third point, right? Your path will be darkened. You'll be trapped. You'll be terrorized. Look at verses 11 through 16. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished. Calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is stormed from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. You know, he uses the word terror often. And in fact, in the book of Job, terror is often um, personified. And for all you science majors... Right? That don't know what personification is. I'm sure everybody does, right? Um, but the personification is a, is a, a, a literary, um, um, literary tool, right? To, to kind of take something that is not 
a human, doesn't have personality, but then to speak of it as if it does. See, terrors will frighten him. It's like they will show up, and everywhere he goes along this wicked path, they keep showing up, and they'll chase him at his heels. They're snapping at his heels. And when he is running out of strength, he is starving. Calamity is ready for him to fall, and then it begins to consume the parts of his skin. That's nasty, verse 13. And the firstborn of death is trying to say death's son is going to swallow him up, eat his limbs. And he's torn from the tent that he trusted in. He thought he was secure. Now he's brought before the king of terrors. So terrors will come against him. This, this is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, right, where he illustrates by, by taking a, a, a flame to a spider. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of that's cruel and weird and, and nasty, right? But his point was, God has every right to destroy the wicked, and the vehicles of his destruction are these terrors. And imagine them like demonic beings coming after us, consuming our, our parts. That's how he would have us to think about it. Verse 15 and 16 talks about the fiery nature of this judgment. In verse 15, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. In other words, everything he possessed is eaten up and gone. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. All you smell is the smell of burning, right? His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. So from the bottom to the top, it is all thoroughly destroyed. And the tent in which he trusted has not been secure enough. Again, theologically true. Jesus himself uses um, um, the, the illustration of fire and sulfur raining down from heaven in Luke 17 to say that that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes on today, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He talks about hell as a place where the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, Mark, Matthew 25, the, it is the place of the eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you're not in Christ, these are real and true theological statements. Only terror awaits those that have not placed their faith in Christ alone. I don't delight in that. We're not glad for that. But that is the nature and reality of our sinful nature and God's absolute perfect holiness and righteousness. This is the path of the wicked. This is the path of every sinner, including me. Unless someone should help. Unless someone should rescue so his sermon on the path of the wicked is, you will be darkened. Life and truth will be gone. You'll be trapped. You, you'll die in your own sinfulness. You'll be terrorized. You may not feel the terror now, but that is certainly coming because that is built in to this path. And then finally, finally, oh, finally, you will be abandoned. This last part is interesting, right? Because I think, and this is where, you know, you know what bedside manner is, right? This is, uh, bedside manner is usually the difference between your doctor and your nurse. <laughs> I offended all the doctors in the room, I apologize. Actually, our doctors, <laughs> I gotta correct myself, I apologize. Our doctors have excellent bedside manner, right? As far as I could tell, they always speak to us graciously, kindly, with thoughtfulness, right? But 
A lot of good doctors and surgeons, if you'll meet them, this is all business. You are, you are literally a piece of meat to them, right? Um, my surgeon, when I, when I got liver surgery, I mean, he was, he was polite. He wasn't mean or anything, but I think if I saw him, he wouldn't even recognize me. He doesn't care about me as a person. He doesn't need to meet my wife or my kids, right? He doesn't care about whether or not I'm part of a church or not. All he cares about is, oh, what's the problem with your liver? Okay, I'm going to cut right there. Right? Like that's, that's their, their bedside manner refers to how you interact personally, compassionately, carefully with this individual that is in pain. And usually, your quality of care in any hospital is more determined by whether the nurses take care of you or whether the doctors in their infrequency, come and say a few words and then take off, right? Bill Dad has no bedside manner, right? Look at what he says in verse 17 to 20. His memory, talking about the sinners, right, the wicked, his memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. Nobody remembers that fool. He's gone. He is not remembered. Nobody cares. He is thrust from light into darkness. He's talked about that along the path. He's driven out of the world, Verse 19, listen to this. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. See, your jaw's going to drop, right? As I read that, my jaw drops. Like, dude, can you really say that to someone you call your friend? Who's literally lost all of his children in a single, you know, windstorm that has killed them all. He is suffering physically, yes. He's suffering emotionally, yes. Mentally, yes. But as he thinks about those individuals that are close to him, his posterity, his progeny, his children. This is Bildad with no bedside manner saying, you know, and then the final thing, Job, that you need to know about the path of the wicked they die alone. Nobody cares. No one knows them. And their children won't survive. That, that is appalling, right? That, that is just not uncompassionate. That is cruel. But Bildad is just that. He, he's a calculator. He is all business. Data in and data out, right? His system is closed. He knows who God is. God is righteous. These things happen to unrighteousness. It looks like God's judgment upon you. And if it looks like God's judgment, if it smells like God's judgment, let's call it what it is. It's God's judgment. Your best path is to repent, get this right, but we might be too late. In fact, Bildad does not encourage Job to repentance, not this round. It's almost as if he's saying, Job, I just want you to know, God, I'm your friend, and I'm that friend that just got to tell you like it is. You're going to hell. And it's really bad. I keep telling you to repent. What can I do? I throw up my hands. I give up on you. Earlier in Job chapter 8, his first round, he says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And listen to this. If your children have sinned against them, he has delivered them into the hand of, your, of their transgression. Maybe your kids were sinners. God just, he just needs to step on them. That kind of stuff happens. Theologically, Perhaps that's accurate. But the lack of compassion does not jibe with who God is and how he works. He is a just God who will not allow any sinfulness to get underneath him, to get past him. 
He must, by his holy nature, destroy everything that is wicked. But at the same time, his holy name in the book of Exodus, right? His holy name is that I'll be merciful to who I am merciful. I'll be gracious to who I'm gracious. He is both the gracious, kind, compassionate God and the absolute, I will not let any injustice escape my notice kind of God. Well, all Bildad has is the second part. That is the nature of his God. He's the kind of guy that will live carefully and will be, get his hackles up if you're not living carefully. Why? Because that's all he knows. Now, if you ask him theologically, is God a loving God? He'll probably say, absolutely. God is good. He is so loving, etc. But we got to keep it right. We got to do right by him. We got to watch our step, watch our words, watch our entertainments, watch all of these leisures, watch these things because God is waiting to crush you like he crushed your children. And that's the path of the wicked. They get all the children crushed and killed. You, you die barren and lonely. That's what wicked people get. That's God's judgment upon you. And that is no spiritual bedside manner. Verse 21 is a concluding warning. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. Knows not God. See, this is the key, right? The, the key is not whether or not Bildad is a bad counselor. He is. And whether or not we want to catch ourselves when we act like Bildad, we should. But the key, the point, the thing that should drive home to our hearts is that we need to know who God is. Not just in his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Yes, all of those. He is all of those in its absolute sense. But he's also gracious and loving and compassionate in a way that human beings cannot fully understand. Our minds cannot handle. Bildad's view of, God, of God's holiness is academic and linear. You sin, you get the hammer. God is like this force of nature, just like kind of wound up and ready to bam, right? Just waiting for you to mess up. Job's POV, for you 50-somethings and older, that means point of view, is totally different. Job's POV is that God is not a mere principle of morality to be, war to be warned against, but he is personal, that God is a friend. Job is the only one that is reported in the book of Job that constantly keeps worshiping God, his friend. So does he agree theologically with everything that has been said? Yes. But his point is, but that's not me. I'm not the one committed to hidden wickedness. I love this guy, and he is my friend. That's why I don't understand why this is happening. I agree with your worldview. That in general, the wicked are punished. I agree with your theological statements that God will attend wrath upon those that walk in wickedness. But that is not me. He's my friend. So why is the path of the wicked circumstantially surrounding the one that is God's friend? Why is this happening to me? Are you curious about how the, the old Hebrews thought about Job? I was, and so I kind of explored. And again, like, like any scholarship, right? the old, old uh, um, rabbis had all kinds of different views on it. But I found this interesting, that there is a tradition in the Talmud that has Job living in the time of the bondage of Israel in Egypt. 
And Job is one of three counselors according to this tradition. And all three of them, Pharaoh consulted before he decided to start killing the firstborn male children of the Hebrews. One counselor said, no, you shouldn't do that. That's wicked. Another counselor said, you should do that because you need to to trim them back. Job, according to this tradition, said nothing. He was neutral on it. And so, according to that Talmudic tradition, this is the reason why all these things fell upon Job. You know why that's interesting to me? Whose worldview and description of God does that fit? That's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. This is how God acts, right? There's a closed system, right? And so as someone like them, or in Jesus' time, someone like a Pharisee or a scribe, or in all time, anyone that has these legalistic, self-righteous tendencies, what will our tendency be? Well, why would God punish you? He must have done something wrong. And so even the Talmud, inserts that he has done something wrong when, in fact, at the end of Job, we'll find out that God himself says, man, you three have sinned in the way that you've talked about me, but not my servant Job. (laughs) I find it remarkable because the, the ancient rabbis, they are committed to the scriptures, but they can't seem to explain why God acts the way that he acts. And so they need to insert a tradition that says, Job might have earned that a little bit. He might have been walking on the path of the wicked, like Bildad claims. I used up too much time in chapter 18. I apologize. But chapter 19 is where the glory is. This is Job's response in chapter 19. Oh, let me sit my head here. Chapter 19, oh, chapter, that was Bildad's condemnation, his sermon on condemnation, Job's pain and hope. And we can look at Job's pain and hope in two sections. The first is his confession of pain in verses 1 through 19. Let me, let me just walk us as quickly as we can through this. Um, look at verses 1 through 6 first. This would, this would be 2A1, all right, if you're following in the outline. It begins with his confession of pain. This is the most personal testimony of suffering that Job expresses in the book. And in verses 1 through 6, he talks about his, his, his experience with those that he calls friends. Verse 1, then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? That response in itself should signal anyone who wants to be godly that we're doing this counseling thing wrong. Right? If you have had to tell somebody, hey, listen, I don't think you should do that, or, uh, hey, your life is this, or uh, you know what happens to people that, if their response is, how long are you going to torment me and break me into pieces with your words? You are not representing God well. You may be theologically, right, advanced, but you are spiritually immature. You know nothing about the person of Christ. Jesus was strong with his words against whom? People like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. People that closed in God and claimed that they represented his righteousness and put right weights and pains and difficulties and burdens on others. And when he encountered genuine sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, right? The worst of the worst, how does he respond to them? 
Well, we know from their response that they feel like this is not the Messiah. He's told me everything about my life. And he's not a good and gentle teacher. So right off the bat, this is Job just expressing his emotional pain. You are killing me with your words. He says these ten times, verse 3, you've cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? See, verse 3 is him saying, are you sure I'm that wicked sinner? Because you're causing me untold mental, emotional, spiritual grief. You are in the, the term torment. The NASB, the NIV says, you are crushing me. You are beating me. Is it conceivable that you might be wrong? Because 10 times, and I don't think he's actually counting. I think it's probably figurative for the repetition of these accusations. And he's saying, is it possible that you're wrong? Because if you are, you ought to be ashamed. But instead, you keep coming at me to break my bones. In verse 4, he says, even if it be true that I've erred. And see, this is Job explaining that he doesn't think he's perfect. Right? He could have erred. He's open to that possibility. But he's saying, even if that's true, my error remains with myself. Meaning, it is my issue, and by implication, it is my issue with my God. How have you stepped in the place of God in my life? How is it that you have determined what is right and wrong and what I am speaking is truth or falsehood? That is an issue that I know in my heart. Just, as, just like if you are in sin, that's an issue you know in your heart. And it's, it's an issue that God knows in his heart. And I don't necessarily have any insight. I may have some suspicions and I might talk to you and say, Hey, listen, I'm concerned about this. But I can't just give summary judgment on something that is your soul? He is saying, dude, you are killing me. You are tormenting me. You are accusers when you should be my friends. You self-appointed judges have usurped the place of God's judgment and you are, you are sapping my life. All right. Listen, I, I want to tell you, don't be a Bildad. That's true. Right? We could even make that a phrase. Dude, don't build at me, man. Don't, don't build, you, you build at me right now. Right? That might mean we're nagging or something. right? Like, hey, did you guys do this? Stuff? Dude, build at I did it, all right? Like, back off, bro. Right? Like, that's fine. But what I want us to recognize, even if you are a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ, saved by His grace, and typically prone to graciousness and compassion, recognize something every human being because we are made in the image of god bears a sense of righteousness in our sinfulness we take that sense of righteous judgment and we naturally with spiritual blindness we turn it spiritual blindness in our theological constructs that spiritual blindness always leaks in if you're having a hard time in terms of your faith or in terms of your relationship with the lord or your relationship with others and it's been an ongoing issue, I'm almost certain that there is some level of spiritual blindness. This is what I mean by spiritual blindness. Let me read you Romans 1, 18-23, and as I do, I would just emphasize certain phrases and see if that doesn't sound like blindness. Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. For images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. Do you hear that? Church, do you hear that? That is still the residual of your sin nature in your life right now. I'm talking to the mature, godly members of our church. You're still prone to that. To spiritual blindness about yourself. A natural, maybe potential judgmentalism towards others. Whatever it is. You are prone to suppress truth. You are prone to becoming futile in your thinking. You are prone to a darkness that invades your thinking and your heart and your soul. And so that you become fools and you claim to be wise, but you're not. Is it possible to be theologically Superman and to be godless? And the answer is yes. We call them Pharisees in the New Testament. But they walk around in Christian clothing today. Can I say something on a positive note? Because I want to just leave us with that kind of, that kind of sadness. One of the things that I, I recognize, even in the midst of our spiritual blindness, is that when we do well, when our spiritual eyes are open and we see God for who He is, and we see the gospel for its goodness, it is because there's an intersection of our mourning over sin, our sorrow for sin, and our thankfulness for his forgiveness. At the cross, there is both that sorrow, Lord, I can't believe the kind of sinner that I am. And there's this thankfulness, Lord, I can't believe that you're the kind of God that you are. And in that intersection, in the gospel, is a place where our eyes are fully open. And our worship is full. And our joy overflows. This is why this is good news. And not, yeah, it's pretty good news. Or it's better than most news. Right? This is the good news of the gospel. That if we confess our sins and mourn over it, and then we recognize that for all the, the wrath, <coughs> the speech of Bildad, that all that we deserve, we do deserve that. But instead, you have placed Christ on that path of wickedness on my behalf so that he has borne my shame and my pain. Then the thankfulness that flows out of that is not a thankfulness of, whoo, got away with that one. Teacher didn't know I cheated, right? It's the thankfulness of knowing that God has seen every wicked corner of our soul and has placed every sinfulness on the cross of Christ so that we're forgiven once and for all in full. And that results in joyful worship. Again, too slow. He's tormented by accusers, and then he's torn down by God. 7 through 12. Note again that Job and all his friends, they fully assert the absolute sovereignty of God. That is never a question for any of them. Everything that has tragically happened to Job's life is the hand of God in Job's life. And so so Job is struggling with two tensions. He wants to know that God is there, that he's still in control. He affirms that constantly. But the other tension is that God cares for him, that God is on his side. He's having a hard time affirming that. 
And the interesting thing, and you can study this more on your own, but in Hebrews 11, that great chapter on faith and the examples of our faith heroes of the past, Hebrews 11:6 defines faith this way. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I want you to hear this again. That, right? For anyone that would draw near to God must, one, believe that he exists. Job, I know that God is there, that he exists. Two, that he rewards those who would seek him. And I think that God is on my side. You see that? His struggle for faith is in exactly those two dimensions that Hebrews eleven six 6 is talking about. In other words, that there is this sense of eternal life held out for us because God, who demands perfect justice, is also a God that provides absolute compassion and grace. How is this possible? That's Job's question. It's a question of the gospel. It's a question that as I look at it, and I think to Job, and I think, Job, I get your quandary. If I had the theological knowledge that you had up to that point, I don't have the New Testament. I don't have Jesus, my Messiah and Savior. I would be probably wondering the same thing. So what is that faith going to look like? Well, it's going to look like this, where he is struggling with the sense that it is God who seems to be against him. God is there. He is real. He's in control. And God is supposed to be my friend. He cares for me. He loves me. So why is this happening? Verse 7. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. No one helps me. The term for violence doesn't just mean that someone is beating me or doing violence to me. It is that call, that singular cry out of a word that says help, right? And nobody is coming. And he goes on to say, verse 8, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. God has made my path basically one alley. And he has set darkness upon my paths. So everything, he is affirming literally the sermon of Bildad. Darkness is coming. It's coming in around me. I am hedged in. I am trapped. It's, it's true. Verse 9, He has stripped me stripped from me my glory and taking the crown from my head. I'm going to read all of this together because all of it is meant to be read together because it is the compilation of all the ways that God has stood against Job. And it ends in this pathetic overkill. Listen to it, verse 9. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He's defeated me. Verse 10. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. He's not just beat me. He's beat me at every turn I try to make. And I'm undone. My hope, he has pulled up like a tree. And God is like stronger than Hulk. He just, whack, he just pulls up trees, right? And he just pulled me up like I was this tree planted by, by you know, by flowing waters in the Psalm 1 sense, right? That Psalm 1, I, I thought I was the Psalm 1 guy. Well, God, just, whack, he just pulled me up. Verse 11, he has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. He has grown in his anger towards me and his wrath poured out against me. And he considers me his enemy. In verse 12, and this is the overstatement, his troops come on together. In other words, they all rush in at the same time. They have cast up their siege ramp against me. They put up all of these siege things so that they could climb the walls and they can attack me in my encampment. And look at that last phrase. And a camp around my tent. Not my city. Not my castle. It's like God brings the full force 
of America's military might surrounds satellite stuff, stuff we probably don't know about, laser beams coming from the sky, right? He pulls all of that stuff to get Job, who is sitting in his tent, in his $29.99 Costco special. It is overkill. And that's Job's, that's what he's trying to explain. What I am feeling is that God is tearing me apart. It is him. I know it's him. Because he is still God. And I don't get why. He would come after me with the full force of his wrathful might. I'm just in a tent. Forsaken by family. Here's, here's another one. Verse 13 to 19. He has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Again, he is affirming the very things that Bildad has just said. The wicked, their path is that they are forgotten, estranged, and unloved. And he's saying, my brothers, they, they haven't come to see. Those who knew me, they, they stand afar, right? Relatives fail. Friends, my friends here, they have forgotten who I am. Verse 15, the guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their sights. He is saying, those guys that used to be guests in my home and the maidservants that would take care of them and me, they act like I don't exist. I call to a servant, verse 16, and he gives me no answer. The guy that usually I say, hey, um, you know, I don't know, Zechariah, can you help me? And Zechariah comes running. No, he doesn't answer. I have to plead with my maidservant, with my manservant for mercy. I'm pleading to my servants to have compassion on me. My breath is strange to my wife. I don't know what that's about, to be honest. <laughs> I'm assuming it's his hell. I don't know. I think that she's offended by his breath. But just so you know, breath, ruach, in the Old Testament, it could mean breath. It could also mean spirit. It could mean soul it could mean wife he might mean that my entire existence is a stench to my wife he says i am a stench to my children to the children of my own i'm sorry to the children of my own mother meaning his his brothers his sisters whoever they are right even young children despise me see this is the worst when you are so beaten down and the little kids look at you and go ah, there goes job he's stupid he's stupid don't use the ass word he's stupid though right that's what's happening when I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I love have turned against me. Listen, this isn't just FOMO. It's not just he has a fear of missing out. He is deleted from existence. And all those that should be close and love him, they're not there. And he is gone. And so is our time. That's, that was pretty good, right? almost three months away and just slide, slide right into that. We will finish up, and I'm sorry that we didn't because I already planned out everything, but unfortunately, we will finish up. The last section of the second section of the second part of Job's cry for of pain and then his amazing testimony of faith in verses 20 through 29. We'll look at that next week. Would you stand with me as you close in a final word of prayer? Or you need a benediction? I'll, I'll pray, and then Brian will close us in a, in a benediction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it stands true. We thank you for what you have written to us in the testimony of Job. And Lord, we hurt with him, even though that was historically done already. 
and we know that he is with you in paradise. Help us to have the kind of compassion that Jesus has, but never compromise on truth, to be theologically mature and to be godly in our compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.